Welcome to PS Podcasts. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news today. Bringing some breaking news just into us. Bringing now breaking news. This is an ABC News special report. Media have never been more abundant and accessible. With just a tap or a click, we can find out the latest news from Washington, Wall Street, or Tahrir Square. The days of waiting for the 7 p.m. news or the early morning paper are long gone. But so too, many argue, is perspective and trust. The media has lost the uh, public trust. If you look at public opinion surveys, there clearly has been a dramatic decline in the uh, people's In 2016, the, uh, a Gallup poll noted that trust in the U.S. media had hit an all-time low of 32 percent. Compare that to 1976, when public trust peaked at 72 percent. What I have here uh, is a copy of Donald Trump's tax returns. We have his federal tax returns. Welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. How do you know if you're living in a free society? Here's a quick test. Are you allowed to say obviously true things? The rise of partisan outlets such as Fox News and MSNBC, along with social media platforms such as Facebook, have contributed to the growing disillusionment. A few weeks ago, our guest Roger McNamee, the author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, noted that through today's algorithms, individuals have their own quote-unquote Truman Show, an information bubble that confirms one's views and biases. Worse, for media companies scrambling for business models in the digital age, open partisanship and clickbait is a feature, not a bug. But if bias fuels profits, and there is evidence that it does, what does that mean for the future of journalism? Jay Rosen joins me to answer that question. Jay Rosen is a professor at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at New York University. He is the author of What Are Journalists For? An Ambassador for the Correspondent, a new online outlet that relies on contributions from the public, not advertising. Jay, you've participated in and observed the media business for a long time. What stands out to you as the biggest changes, both good and bad, in the digital age? Well, um... The news business benefited from a very long period of stability in its underlying technology and its business model for decades and decades, in some ways like over 100 years, where um, the underlying communication platform that carried information remained fairly stable with um, television, radio, print, and then practices built on top of that, like news gathering and the news business itself, could be fairly stable. And then as the 20th century wore on, 1950s, 60s, um, the news media was either an oligarchy or a monopoly business, which provided a lot of stability, but didn't, of course, mean a lot of choice or flexibility or innovation used to be that innovation, for example, in the newspaper business was a new food section. That was innovation. And so that's what I mean by remarkable stability. And as a result of that, professional attitudes could also remain fairly stable, and the people working in the news business felt that they had uh, a lot of authority in the culture, and in many ways they did, because it was a limited universe with limited competition. And there wasn't much innovation. Uh, And so the biggest thing that's different is everything, (laughs) because that entire world is gone. And uh, 
So, for example, within the reach of a newsreader in Baltimore is every single thing published on the web. Whereas in the past, it was a handful of uh, providers who could reach that person. Um, and uh, the barrier to entry used to be very high. In the magazine business, you had to get on the uh, magazine newsstand. That was hard. Or you had to have a printing press. That was expensive. Or you had to have a broadcast license. That was even more expensive. Now, you need a web connection. Or as my friend and colleague Clay Shirky says, publishing used to be an industry. Now it's a button. Publish. So that means not just more competition, it means more innovation, and you, there's no barriers to entry. There's a lot of chaos when a new system like that emerges. And uh, as we might expect, the authority of the uh, journalism profession is affected by all of those things. Another thing there is a lot of as well is polarization. Just last month, Jeet here, a Canadian journalist, an author, and a critic, warned about the normalization of extreme right-wing views masquerading as mainstream on Fox News. Um, and news media have long been accused of political bias, often for good reason. But the current environment of polarization and partisanship feels different. Is it? Well, it's much different than the familiar charge of political bias, which dates back 40 years or so. We have uh, warring tribes. We have intensely uh, partisan news providers like Fox News. But more striking than that is we have a president in, in the U.S. whose political style is to polarize. It's hard to overestimate how different that is from what we're used to, at least in the post-war era. All presidents you know, were, were elected with a split vote, but then the measure of success for, a, for an American president was how many supporters of the other side did they pick up as they tried to govern. Right? And the uh, uh, presidential approval rating was the way that we uh, sort of determine how well they were doing at reaching out to the people who didn't vote for them. And they all tried to do that. Uh, our current president's method is to polarize the country and hope that his half is bigger than the other parties have. And he does that not just by uh, policy differences, but by attacking all the major institutions of democracy and trying to identify with um, people's mistrust of those institutions, which includes the press, but it's also um, the financial system and the election system and the judicial system and the FBI and professionals in government and diplomats. <laughs> uh, and it, we've never had a figure at the top of the society like that who's trying to polarize and trying to undermine trust in the major institutions of a democracy. So those are like completely novel conditions. And one of the things that really interests me and, and concerns me as a, as a writer about this is, of course, uh, how, how do journalists respond to that? So, so there's no comparison, I think, between, let's say, what, what the charge of bias might have meant and how it was deployed in the 1970s and 80s um, and what we have now, which is a, a state of, of a permanent culture war 
and uh, drastic polarization. Well, it's also a state of reaction, because when I take a look at news outlets like CNN, you know, they're very much, you know, focusing on this brand of, you know, facts first. Mm -hmm. And that certainly has an effect on what they're what they're conveying to the public. And so it's the equivalent is like a restaurant chain marketing itself by promising that its food won't give you the runs. If they're going out there and saying facts first, what does that say about journalism? Well, I look at it a little bit different. Um, I think that the, the, the Republican Party first and then Donald Trump, uh, who has come to sort of take, take it over, um, are in a kind of a structural conflict with the news media in, the, in this sense. When, when an issue like climate change becomes um, part of the Republican Party program and denial of climate change is, is, is sort of um, a party position, that is, go- is almost by definition is going to create conflict with journalists who have to be evidence-based. And if the Democratic Party <laughs> decided that there was no such thing as climate change, it would be the same thing, right? And I feel like one of the most striking uh, features of the current environment uh, is that conflict with the news media is built into the way the current government does politics. It's part of their political style. It's so it's not a sort of a comment on a bad story or a blown interpretation. It's a structural feature of how they appeal to their uh, voters. Um, so, for example, in the 2016, w- one of the campaign promises that I believe the winning candidate made was that he would sort of put down the national press for his voters who wanted to see that. And that is a promise he has delivered on without question. And it's also a key part of why people who support him support him. So I think um, this, these conflicts over truth and truth-telling and bias uh, have moved from being sort of episodic uh, and incidental to being structural features of how politics is done. And uh, this is a very difficult thing, of course, to adjust for, especially for uh, a, an institution like CNN, which defines itself as um, down the middle. You know, that's, a, that's like a feature of how they see themselves. We're, we're not a right-leaning or left-leaning news organization. We do everything down the middle. Um, and that, that is a very hard thing to keep to when you are facing a powerful figure who's incorporating you into their political style. And that's what I think President Trump does. Well, another factor that I think is challenging traditional media today is also social media. So platforms like Twitter and then Facebook. And here I want to just touch on a report that Neiman Lab recently did, and they note that Fox News benefited more than most news outlets from face from the Facebook algorithm change last year. Can you talk a little bit about why that change is so important, and what does it tell us about the relationship between the echo chambers created on social media and traditional news sources? 
Well, this is the one of the things that's so different about our current environment compared to 15 years ago uh, is that um, people don't rely on professional journalists necessarily for their information. They don't have to. Um, they can not only choose their own news diet, but they are themselves distributors of news and sharing behavior. Um, and we're sort of living through an uncontrolled experiment to find out what happens when people have that freedom to choose their own news, share what they want to share, um, uh, read what they want to read, and where they are fed their next story based not on what's important or what journalists think is uh, new and different, but based on uh, a machine learning program that um, is trying to predict what they will want next uh, and is based on the assumption, which is kind of a strange assumption, that um, if you like this, you'll like something that's very similar to it next, right? Which is kind of a weird news diet when you think about it. So, yeah, it's a totally different world. It's one that traditional media are still adjusting to in many ways the tech platforms who ha which have no particular um, brief for journalism have taken charge of the relationship between the user of news and the provision of news. They are in charge of that relationship in many ways. And, and that has been especially difficult and painful for the providers of news to adjust to. The difference between TV and the digital age is that the TV people did not have your data and had to broadcast to, you know, a million TVs got the same thing, whereas YouTube can go, aha, that's your weakness. Let me give you more of that. I want to pick up on what you just talked about, about machine learning, because we've heard this not only on Facebook, but particularly on YouTube, about how the yeah. algorithm, you know, if you... Zainab Tufek, she talks about this, you know, she looks up, she wants to, you know, learn a little bit about running. And then, you know, the next few videos that they recommend to her are being an ultra marathoner. And so yeah. there's much more extreme content. How do we combat that? Well, this is a fact about how YouTube works. And um, it's a deliberate strategy built into their technology. And they are just now starting to cope with criticisms of the excesses of that uh, system. And they are trying, just like Facebook is trying to battle misinformation and propaganda and false facts. And But I don't think either one of them is really equipped to deal with this because as tech platforms, their their mission has been to to draw users, keep users using their product, and they have self-consciously decided not to be editorial companies, not to make judgments. None of, none of their small and very tentative efforts to try and control the quality of information on their platforms have succeeded. I don't really think it's in their DNA. I don't think they're very serious about it. Instead, what they're doing is they're fighting fires. They're trying to put out these explosions of criticism that come at them, mostly because of sort of spectacular events. 
uh, like people hounded to death in other countries because of false rumors on Facebook, things like that. You know, and they're they're fighting these temporary battles that explode here and there, but I don't think it's in their DNA to actually do anything about these problems, and so I'm pessimistic that they're going to be able to do that. Well, who who can do something about it? Why would you assume that there's necessarily a way to do something about it? Well, Elizabeth Warren, who is a candidate in the Democratic presidential election for 2020, has proposed that there be specific regulations on yeah. Facebook, specifically. Yeah, looking- the government is the one agency that could do something about it. Um, that is true. Uh, not our government, because our government barely functions anymore. So I have no no hope of that. But you are starting to see that. I mean, especially out of Europe. I don't think you're going to see meaningful regulation in the United States, but it's possible. You know, in a different political climate, maybe it might be possible. But you are seeing in uh, Europe the beginnings of a kind of revolt of governments against these big machines, trying to regulate them and trying to make sure that they obey certain uh, principles, and we'll see how successful that is. But that is the one institution that's more powerful, potentially, than Facebook. But even there, like, Facebook's bigger than any one government, you know, Uh, and has a lot of money. And even if, let's say, Europe could get its act together and meaningfully regulate Facebook, that still leaves most of the globe that really has no way of stopping this juggernaut. Is there a viable business model that can preserve journalism's traditional function, which is to hold the powerful to account, um, while also enabling citizens to make informed decisions? Well, we're in about year 15 of this business model crisis. It's not solved, um, but it's worth understanding the reasons for it. Uh, We had mostly an advertising-based media system in the U.S., and that, has, of course, has all been blown to bits by the, by the Internet. And um, the advertising business is being transformed, and it has been, for the most part, captured by the tech platforms. Uh, and the reason it's been captured by the tech platforms is that they do a better job. Um, they solve uh, some of the problems that advertising had for many years. So the most famous of them is the one pointed out by John Wanamaker, the Philadelphia department store owner in the previous century, who said 50% of my advertising budget is wasted, but nobody can tell me which 50%. And that was true for advertising for a very long time. That, that's a very insightful remark about the nature of advertising. So what he was saying was the media system is not addressable enough to send my ads for my department store only to the people who are customers of my department store, right? So that's why 50% of my ad budget is wasted, but nobody can tell me what 50%. So now we have solved that problem. We, and uh, the tech platform has solved it by gathering information about users and therefore being able to send the messages of an advertiser only to those people who are likely to be in the market. So that system is so much better, so much more effective, it's, it's more um, likely to work, and it's cheaper than the other system. So as a result, 80% of all the new digital advertising goes to, to uh, Facebook and Google. 
That leaves 20% for everybody else. And that is the fundamental reason why we have a business model crisis in journalism. And that has not gone away. It hasn't changed. It's getting more dramatic. Um, and so most people who study this believe that if we are going to have the kind of journalism that you mentioned in your question, that it's going to have to come from, from readers, viewers, um, users paying more directly for news. Uh, and that is definitely happening, um, but um, in order for that to grow, people have to trust the product. They have to feel that it's valuable enough to pay for. They have to feel that it's made for them. Um, they have to feel a part of it, uh, and those are not necessarily strengths of the news business as it has grown up in the United States. So. We the other major model that exists for supporting that kind of work is the BBC model uh, with a license fee. Uh, and that is also under attack in different ways. In Europe, the right-wing populist parties are actually going directly at the license fee to public broadcasters and trying to erode support for the public broadcasters, in part by claiming, of course, that they're biased. So you have a political attack on public broadcasting at the same time that you have the erosion of the advertising model. Um, put all those things together, and we don't know how we're going to get serious public journalism in the future. And everybody's aware of the problem, but nobody has solved it yet. One solution that you have been a part of recently is The Correspondent, mm -hmm. which is an ad-free platform that is reader public public funded and recently it was announced that it there's a headquarters in Amsterdam and it was announced that there would not be a headquarters in New York um, can you talk about that decision and and what effect it will have on the correspondent as mm -hmm. as a journalistic organization well let's start with why I'm supporting the correspondent. The correspondent is the world's most successful ad-free member-funded news site. They have 61,000 members. They've been operating since 2013 in the Netherlands. 90% uh, of their um, revenue comes directly from members in one way or another. They don't have any government support, and they, they don't have any advertising. So um, the reason I'm supporting them is I feel like membership is a way to rebuild the relationship between the producers of news and the users of news from the ground up. What I mean by from the ground up is that it's not just a different kind of journalism, it's got a different business model, and the people who think it's important, the members, are the ones directly supporting it. Um, but because uh, it's different than subscription, it gets around another problem, which is uh, digital paywalls. So what I mean is subscription is a product relationship. You pay your money, you get the product. If you don't pay it, you don't get it. Membership is you join the cause because you believe in the work. You believe it's important, like public radio in the United States. And if you believe it's important, then you want it to spread even to non-members. And that's uh, a key detail because as the news industry starts to look towards readers and users and viewers for more of the revenue, um, a, a problem that arises is not everybody can afford to become a subscriber. 
Uh, and even if people can afford a scription, they can probably only afford like one or two or three, and there are many news sources that deserve support. Uh, and so membership appealed to me because it doesn't in imply the necessity of a paywall. And on top of that, they have an editorial approach that puts correspondence at the center. They're able to um, define their own beats, choose their own reporting projects. And in return for that, they have to treat the members as a knowledge community who can help make the journalism better. And I felt that was an important invention as well because that helps produce trust in, and a tighter relationship between the journalists and the users. So those are some of the reasons why I decided to support them when they announced that they wanted to expand to the U.S. and to the English-speaking world. Now, to reference the controversy that you asked about, um, we, had, we had sort of a vague idea of of, w of where and how w we would locate this new thing. Uh, and we weren't that focused on it because we had to run a membership campaign in the United States to find founding members for the correspondent, the English language version of day correspondent. Those members came from all over the world, 130 countries. Uh, and about 40% of them are Dutch. About 40% of the founding members of the correspondent are uh, based in the U.S., and the rest are based uh, around the world. So now we have 49,000 members who have signed up. We have $2.6 million, and we have to invent this publication that will appeal to those uh, people. Um, and uh, the, the correspondent already has a functioning newsroom in the Netherlands with developers, with designers, with editors, uh, with social media people. Uh, and it was felt that, they, that we could get more journalism, more bang for the buck, so to speak, to use a cliche, if the correspondent shared the office and the support staff of day correspondent. Um, and so they ended up announcing a few weeks ago that, um, that the base uh, or headquarters for the correspondent would be in Amsterdam, and the uh, reporters and writers and correspondents that they hire would be distributed around uh, the English-speaking world and around the United States. Uh, and part of the reason for that was that if you can locate your correspondents anywhere, then they can be where they ought to be for their subject matter. And you can widen the talent pool from which you draw because you don't have to just pick people who can live in New York or already live in New York. Right? Um, uh, but when we announced this, uh, some people felt that we had sort of promised a New York headquarters. They were upset about that. Um, and we, uh, when we looked at it, realized we had kind of given that impression and, and should have communicated much more clearly about it. Um, and in particular, we should have informed the members about this decision before we went public with it uh, and probably should have um, asked the members or at least a sample of the members what they felt about it. But I think in the end, what's going to matter is the quality of the journalism we do, not necessarily where the headquarters is. And I don't think it's possible to say that in order to run a good news site now, you need to be headquartered in New York. I don't, I don't think that's true, even though I live in New York. Jay, we end each episode asking each of our guests this question. What gives you hope? 
Well, not a lot gives me hope. I think we're, we're in definitely the darkest period of my career. I've been doing this for 32 years, and there's no question that we have more problems in sort of seeing how we're going to have the journalism we need than we have, we have ever had uh, in that period of time. Um, but uh, uh, the w- one or two things give me hope. One is that it used to be that news organizations – newsrooms were very siloed in that they they all could go their own way and do their own thing and they never had to collaborate or cooperate about anything um, because they were each like masters of their domain and now it's slowly dawning on people in the news business and journalism profession around the world that they have to work together and we're seeing a lot more of it like collaboration in investigative journalism has exploded over the last 10 years. Uh, Not only do we have great projects like the Panama Papers, but we have whole institutions devoted to collaboration across borders. Um, And that is really important. Um, Similarly, I think everybody understands that a a free press figure like uh, Maria Reza from the Philippines, the fate of that person is important to everybody in journalism around the world. We kind of like intuitively understand that now. Uh, and I think that has been, is a very positive development is people who believe in the importance of journalism um, kind of get that this is a global fight uh, and we therefore see a lot more cooperation. So I consider that a very positive development and I hope it continues. Jay, thank you. You are so welcome. Jay Rosen is a professor at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at New York University. He is the author of What Are Journalists For? An Ambassador for the Correspondent, a new online outlet that relies on contributions from the public, not advertising. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. P.S. Podcast is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Donna.